0: The book we're gonna study tonight for just a few minutes is the book of Nahum. And you're gonna hear, listen to me, you're gonna hear the best sermon you have ever heard on Nahum. You know why? Because you've never heard a sermon on Nahum. I was, I was, my staff, they were saying to me day before yesterday, what are you going to, what are you going to talk about? And I said, Nahum. And one of my staff members said, "Nehu." <laughs> and not a single one of them had ever heard a sermon on Nahum. Now I've preached on it, but only one time. And that was, that was during an Old Testament survey. But I don't know of any book more relevant For our time, than the book of Nahum. You've heard me say before that if you've never stood before God and been loved, you're worshiping an idol. I mean really loved, not just loved but liked. A God who knows there isn't a party unless you're there. If you've never stood before God and sensed that, then you're worshiping an idol. And also, if you've never stood before God and been absolutely confused about everything, with no answers to any questions, no theology that works anymore, and everything is sticking out of the suitcase, you're worshiping an idol. God is big. He's bigger than we can think. And so you should be confused. One of my dear friends and I walked over here this evening and said, she was telling me some stuff about her life, and she said, where was God? I don't understand. And I thought, well, young lady, welcome to the club. I don't understand either. In fact, the older I get, the less I understand about God. And the more I love him something else, and I've said this before, if you've never stood before God and been scared spitless, you're worshiping a eye. God is big, and he's holy, and he's awesome. God is big. And when you mix your works and your goodness and what you can do trying to please God, the only thing you do is bring God's holiness down to your level as you raise yourself up. I'll tell you, I don't know anybody who's arrogant who understands the holiness of God. I don't know anybody who tells God, are you going to say to me, well done, good and faithful servant, who really understands the holiness of God. I don't know anybody who brags about their goodness or who thinks they're pleasing God, who knows about the scary, awesome gigantic God we worship who is holy, holy, holy to the third degree. And the danger for us, those of us who get grace profoundly and deeply and live on it and know that God isn't angry, the danger for us is that we'll have a squishy God. The danger for us in our talk about love, the fact that he likes us, which is very true, that it is finished, that Jesus thinks we're something else, and he does. When we mix that in and don't see the flip side of it, we get into trouble. And Nahum is the flip side of that. It is a God who is very, very scary. The interesting thing about this book and the reason it's so apt for our time is that Nahum isn't talking mostly about God's people. He's talking about the people who hate God's people. It's only three chapters, and if you can't find it in your Bible, welcome to the club. Go to the end of the Old Testament, count five books back, and you'll land right in Nahum. And it's only three chapters. In fact, you could read the entire thing while I'm teaching it to you. And if you do, you'll get the fever and die. So read it after the sermon tonight, not during it. Nahum Elkosh is his hometown, and we're not sure where that is. We do believe that this book was written somewhere between 660 and 630 BC. How do we know that? Because in 722, the big boys on the block, the Assyrians, their capital city of Nineveh, were wiping out the entire world, killing and raping. They made ISIS look like pikers. And they wiped out the northern kingdom of God's people, Judah, totally. In fact, they never lived again as a nation. And Israel's looking at what's happening to Judah, and they're thinking it could happen to me. And they're scared spitless Nahum says, don't be, you worship a big God. And more important than that, you worship a God of justice just because he doesn't balance the books on Thursday doesn't mean he doesn't balance the books. Now, the thing that's going on here is that Nahum is addressing Syria and Nineveh and the enemies of God's people, but he's really talking to us. He's talking to God's people, and you read through it, you'll think that doesn't sound Very Christian to me. Let me read to you from some of the first verses. Start in the first chapter, and then I'm going to lift up some verses as we go along. But listen to this. An oracle, a prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is a whirlwind and a storm, and the clouds are the dust at his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up the rivers. Boshem, that's the breadbasket of the region. And Carmel, impressive mountain range, wither. The blood of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. He, the hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before God's indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into the darkness. Whoa, 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 don't mess with that kind of God because he's holy and he's big and he's scary. A number of years ago, I was invited by a television producer of a secular television station in Miami to debate the famous atheist Madeline Murray O'Hare. I uh, had met her son the day after he became a Christian. His name was William And he was so broken and so down, he's healed. But that whole philosophy of atheism and hatred was so ripe in his life. And he was the young man when he was a child on behalf of whom the suit was made to take prayer out of the public schools. He was the guy. And later on, he came to Christ, and has been a sterling witness for God since that time. But they asked me to debate Madeline Murray over here, and I said, I'm not going to do it. I've heard her debate, and I could win because I'm meaner than she is, and I can cuss better than she can, and I can fight dirtier than she can, but my problem is... In order to win the debate with her, i got to be like her. And a lot of people are going to be watching people who have heard me teach about God's grace and his love, so I can't do it because I'm going to violate one or the other. But I hope you find somebody who's mean as a snake to debate her. And they asked the president of the local Christian college, a nice, sweet, gentle, kind obedient, faithful, loving man to debate. Matt, yeah, you know what happened. I mean, she shucked him with her language. She went for his throat, and there was blood all over the floor. And as I watched, I had to turn it off. And I said, God, maybe I should have gone. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Because I'm the meanest preacher in the valley, and I should have gone, but I couldn't because there was another audience. Well, Nahum, and by the way, Nahum's name means comfort. You say, well, that doesn't sound much like comfort to me. I mean, he sounds like he's really ticked. That's not the kind of God who's warm and fuzzy and nice. No, it isn't. But Nahum's name is named properly. Because the essence of where we are is resting in the faith that there is a God of justice and that the books will be balanced. It is such a good book for our time. The, this week's issue of Christianity Today, I served on their board for a hundred years and on the executive committee. When I went there, we owed $6 million. And today we've won that battle. They are the most uh, successful publishing company in the history of Christianity. They publish 10 magazines and books, and they have to hide the money. There's so much of it. But I can remember when Mr. Graham was the chairman of that board, and he bit his fingernails worrying about how we were going to keep it afloat. And then God came, and God did it. And I still read the magazine, and this week they had a question. It was a cover story. Is Christianity dead in the Middle East? The bottom line was this, no, it isn't, because Christians belong to God. There will always be a witness. They will always stand. But sometimes I wonder, I read about the Christians who are literally being crucified by the Islamists hung on crosses, the women who are being raped, the Christian women, the churches that are being bound. And I cry out to God, as did the saints in the book of Revelation, the seventh chapter, Lord, how long will you avenge the blood of your own people? How long? And Nahum was written for our time. I've seen the burned churches in Egypt and listened to the Christians sing their songs of love. And I know, I know we're witnessing to his love, but but, but where's the justice? Where's, and then in America, things have changed, if you haven't noticed. Uh, I have a friend at Perimeter Church in Atlanta And he wrote a book on uh, rules for those of us who have lost the battle. We still act like we've won it. We haven't. (laughs) I mean, they've given the village idiots the microphones, and they're saying really dumb things. Good is portrayed as evil, and evil is good, and love and hate get mixed up, and it's directed to us. I've never seen it like this before. I've never seen so much anger directed at Christians. A lusty, materialistic paganism, and they hate us because they know that what we teach is truth. And so sometimes you want to say, Lord, they're winning. Lord, they're taking over the media. Lord, Lord, they're killing off your people. They're raping my sisters. They're killing the children. They're burning the churches. Do something. And Nahum is our book. Nahum is speaking to God's people and addressing his remarks about judgment to the enemies of God's people. Now, I I want to go down one side road because some of this is going to be a little bit rough. And I want to show you something really important about this particular text. Even in the middle of this text, uh, this book, and there are a couple of places in the book where you'll find it when you read it before you go to bed tonight. But there's a statement about who God really is. In the third verse, I hope you noticed, I went by it pretty fast. This is what Nahum wrote. The Lord is slow to anger. We wait. Well, he's only talking about, no, he's talking about his nature. Slow to anger. I'm a Calvinist. A five-point Calvinist, and I can repeat the Westminster Confession of Faith backwards, but sometimes we turn mean when we misrepresent God. Let me tell you something, and I want you to remember it. If your doctrine of election violates the clear teaching of Scripture on God's nature, not as loving, but as loves, there's something wrong with your doctrine of election. I'll show you what we do in 2 Peter 3:9. Peter says it's not his will that any should perish. And Calvinists, many of my brothers and sisters, say, well, he's not talking about the world. He's only talking, he's only talking about the elect. It's not his will that any of the elect should perish. Doesn't say that. And the last time I checked, God said what he meant, and he meant what he said, and if he had meant just the elect, he would have said so. What does that mean? That means that means, that hell is not a place where God rejoices. It's the place where he weeps. And his choice at creation, knowing your name, when that choice was made and knowing that others would not be named, he wept. And so if your doctrines don't include the tears of God, then you don't understand the God of the Bible. Even in one of the harshest books in the entire Bible, Nahum, he is a God, he is slow to anger. You know that I teach that God is not angry at his own. I teach that everywhere, and I keep telling people that God is not angry at you. And I had friends who came to me and they made sense. They say, Steve, for some reason, you attract pagans to your meetings. You can't tell them that God's not angry at them, he is. The wrath of God is poured out on unbelief. And I went, oh, that's true. And so, uh, and so I would say, if you're a believer, God is not angry at you and he never will be again. If you're not a believer, he's mad as spit at you. And you ought to be afraid, very afraid. And I was praying one night after a conference, and God said, Steve, quit misrepresenting me. You speak a doctrinal truth, but you skew it in a way that you're not teaching who I really am. Augustine said the love of God secured the cross. The cross did not secure the love of God. Could I say that again, because it's profound. The love of God preceded and secured the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ was not a place where an angry, vindictive monster's anger was ameliorated. The cross did not secure the love of God. God in his very nature, and he can't change it because he's immutable, is a God who is slow to anger. And so I've started saying it differently. I say to people, if you're a Christian, he ain't angry at you. And he'll never be angry again, ever, because it's finished. It's satisfied. You are dressed and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And if you're not a believer, let me tell you what to do. You're screwed up. (laughs) And we are too. So come with us to Jesus. And if you'll run to him, he won't be angry at you either because of the blood of Christ. That night when I prayed, he said, that's better. (laughs) That's better. All right, let's look at some things that, uh, and I felt constrained to say what I just said because of what I'm getting ready to say. Uh, As you read through Nahum, you see a very, very dangerous and vindictive God. And you wonder, Nahum, if your name is Comfort, where does the comfort come from? All you're doing is scaring us to death. Uh, We're accused sometimes of cheap grace. It's a lie. It's not true. In fact, if it didn't free, nobody can afford it. We're accused of being antinomian, to being grace people. Let me tell you, be proud of that. But when they say you're squishy, Grace, you say, no way. Because I know what the book of Nahum really teaches. And I'm going to show you tonight. Listen, if we could somehow really believe that we're forgiven you say well you don't know what yeah i do you don't fool me even that that we're really forgiven if we really knew that his story was our story that we died in christ my pastor last sunday i can't believe i'm doing this my pastor last sunday talked about a man who had a cat and the cat died and he loved the cat and he just wept and said, I can't do without my cat. I'm going to get another opinion. Maybe he's not dead. So he picked up his dead cat and took him to the veterinarian. And he said, I want you to examine my cat. Tell me, wh- <laughs> Tell me whether or not he's dead. The doctor said, that'll be $50. So he gave him the $50. He put his stethoscope on, on the cat and said he's dead. I'm sorry to inform you, and the man wept. And he said, could you get another opinion? It's, And so the doctor whistled, and a Labrador retriever came in, walked around the cat, sniffed at him, and then looked at the vet and the man and went, he's dead. And the man said, I I can't stand this. Could you get one more opinion? The vet whistled again, and a cat came in, walked around that cat, and wept because one of his own. But he looked at the vet and went, he's dead. And the man said, I guess he really is dead. The doctor said, that'll be 100 bucks. And he said, I thought you said it was 50. He said, that was before the lab work and the CAT scan. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. (laughs) But what if we knew our story was his story and that we were dead? and that when he got up out of the grave, we got up out of the grave. And when he sat down at the right hand God the Father, we sat down at the right hand of God the Father. What if we knew that we were totally loved? Without exception, without kicker, without addition, without correction, no matter what we did or where we, what if we really believed that? I tell you what would happen. Two things would happen, the first thing is, we would party. (laughs) I'm the most inhibited person you ever met, I can't party. One of the ladies in the office was asking me about me and and how my day has gone, I said, boring. And I'm a boring person, I live a boring life and boring is good. But I'll tell you something, if I really believed that I was totally forgiven, acceptable, loved so profoundly that I could never lose it. If I knew that 100%, I would speak in tongues, and then I would dance and laugh and get down and party. But there's a second thing that happens. If you really know that, you're not squishy. You become, listen to me, very, very dangerous. When you don't care because you died, when you don't care because you're loved, you are given the freedom to speak truth, to speak it clearly, and some of that truth is not pleasant. I'm just thinking about my friend, uh, Rusty Anderson. He's in heaven now. He was killed in an automobile accident. I used to do a skeptics forum at our church. If I told you this, we only let atheists and agnostics come. We met in my study, and there were 15 of them, and I would answer their questions, and a third of them became Christians, and the rest quit laughing. Uh, Rusty said, I want to come to one of those. I said, you can't. Now, Rusty was a graduate of Westminster Seminary, and he was a stockbroker. He never wanted to be a pastor. He just wanted to know more than his pastor knew. So he we went to seminary, got a graduate degree, and then made a lot of money as a stockbroker. And I said, no, you can't come. He said, I promise I'll be quiet. I said, you, you haven't done this, you don't understand the ministry, and you won't be able to remain silent. And he said, yes, I will. I said, all right, but you're out of there, the first thing you say. He sat behind my desk, and I sat out in the circle with all the atheists and agnostics. And the first night, Rusty didn't utter a word And when it was over, I said, I didn't believe you could do it. I love you, man. You did good tonight. Maybe I'll let you say something as we go on into this. Next time, and listen to me, just so you know, unbelievers say stupid things and stupids forever. I mean, they really do. I mean, we have this idea they read books and they've pondered these issues and they've got a grasp. So we don't say anything to them because we're afraid of them. Don't be afraid of them. I mean, the hardest thing about that entire ministry was to keep from saying to somebody who thought he or she had uttered some kind of wonderful, profound thought. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. If you had the, have you ever read a book? If you had the brains of a peanut, you wouldn't say that. But you never said that. You always said, that's interesting. But one night, I'll never forget this night. I can close my eyes. And I can see, I can hear the sound of Rusty's fist when he hit the desk and he hit the desk and everybody got quiet. And he said, I know you told me, I could, but I got to say something. You guys are going to hell. And I went, it's gone, man. It's over. The sensitivity is out the door. This ain't going to work from year on. And then he got really sad and he said, I've learned to love you and i And I don't want that to happen. It was the most powerful evening we ever had at Skeptic's Forums. Why was that? Because Rusty was free and he could speak truth. And so we speak truth too. And we speak truth, that's why we're dangerous. Kindly, with mercy and love, but it is still truth. Show you three things about justice and then I'll end. The first thing about justice you need to know is that, uh, that the necessary correlation, i.e. flip side of God's love and mercy and kindness and grace is his justice. Listen to this, Nahum 1-3, whole verse, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Do you remember that George Burns movie, Oh, God? I thought it was going to be blasphemy, and it really wasn't. It was not a bad book, a movie. I mean, there's some, you know, George Burns was Jewish, and, I mean, he doesn't believe everything. But, but it was a very respectful movie and kind of a yay God movie. But you remember when, the, I don't know if you saw it, it was back in the 70s, but you can get it on Netflix. And, uh, and uh, a little kid asked George Burns, who's God? How come so much suffering and pain and stuff in the world? And he said, son, because I couldn't figure out how to make a front without making a back. I couldn't figure out how to create a top without having a bottom. That's profound. The flip side of God's love is his justice. And don't ever forget it the lifting up and the honoring and the blessing of God's people ultimately means nothing more or less than the destruction of evil totally. That's justice. And so as we, as we as Christians read Nahum, we're reading about a God who has a flip side and the flip side is justice. If you ever had your friends say, I hope God's just, and you should appropriately respond, are you a fruitcake? Are you out of your mind? You don't want God to be just. If he's just just, you're in trouble. But the other side is his love. But you can't have the love without the justice. You can't have the grace without the justice. The flip side, the necessary correlation of God's love and grace is his justice or the love and grace, they don't mean anything because there's another thing you ought to know about justice that's taught in the book of Nahum. Uh, Note also that the manifestation of God's mercy, kindness, and love is justice that is Referencing a moral order. The Lord will by no means, the third verse again, will by no means clear the guilty. Guilty of what? Guilty of violating the commandments, the teaching of God that is built into the very nature of the universe. Walter Martin was a friend of mine. He wrote The Chaos of the Cults. He's a weird dude. But I liked him. He used to preach at my church a year before a lot of you were born. One time he was on the long John Nebel show in New York, and he was on with a Jewish atheist who had said on the program that all values were relative to the culture where they were found. In other words, there is no absolute value. And Walter said that during the break, he knew philosophically, he had a Ph.D., he knew philosophically how to answer that, but it would take too long. It would be too obtuse, and everybody would turn it off. So when they got back, he had this brilliant idea, and he said to the Jewish atheist, let's play a game. The atheist said, what? He said, let's play a game. He said, let's pretend that you are living under the Third Reich in Germany, I'm a part of the Gestapo, and we have rousted you out of your bed in the middle of the night, and we have taken you to headquarters, and I have a German Luger, and I'm pointing it to your head. Now, you tell me why I shouldn't pull the trigger. And Walter said, all of a sudden, it became real, because if you're Jewish, you're Jewish. Shoah and Holocaust are Pretty scary things. And so, and so the man said, well, you, you just can't do that. Walter said, why not? He said, because it's wrong. Walter said, no, it's not wrong. As a culture, we've decided you are inferior. And you are right for extermination. Now, you tell me why I shouldn't pull the trigger. Because it's a hateful thing to do. No, it's not. It's a moral thing to do. Because we as a culture have decided the highest morality is to rid ourselves of your race. And pretty soon it was very clear that Walter was winning the argument. If there's no God, there's no morality. There's no morality. There's no meaning. If there's no meaning, you're a turnip. And you're going back to the dust. And so guilt, which references justice for us, is a good thing. You know why? Because when we look at the Ten Commandments, which are not suggestions, when we look at the law of God that Nahum references here, the bad and good as it's clearly defined in God's word, we go, oh, Jesus says, come here. And we walk across a road of repentance to be hugged by the only one who can forgive us. And so justice is a gift for the believer. Justice, on the other hand, is not a gift for the un... I got a speeding ticket four weeks ago. You ever been to traffic school? I'll never go to hell because I've been there. That is the worst. I mean, it is, they were asking questions like, um, is it a good thing to drive when you're drowsy? Duh. And people were raising their hands to answer that. And I said, what are you crazy? Then I got for four hours, you got to sit there. But the police officer, his name is Josh. And I think he listens to my radio talk show and he really didn't want to give me the ticket, but he said, Mr. Brown, The speed limit's too low here, and you went over it. And we've tried as the police to raise the speed limit, but the neighbors won't let us, and so I gotta give you a ticket. But it's gonna be less than you should have gotten because you were flying. And I said, well, thank you for that. So he wrote it out. He said, it's gonna cost you 150 bucks. And I said, but I don't have to go to traffic school, right? And he said, no, you gotta go to traffic school. So I did. I don't have any points. It was justice. I mean, there are other times he could have called me. It could have been a lot worse. So I got what I deserved. But I was driving down that same road. You ever have somebody get on your tail and push you? And, and, and you know, it's road rage. And then they start hitting their horn, and then they pull out in the wrong lane and zip in front of you and, and say all manner of evil against you falsely. <laughs> well, this guy came on the same road, came up behind me. And I wanted to say, I am not going any faster than I'm going because I'm not going to traffic school ever again in my entire life. I'm just never going to do it. So just deal with it, Buster. And he hit his horn and then he pulled out. and And you always say when that happens, Lord, if there was any justice in the world, a cop would have seen that. But you ever seen one? I have, <laughs> a cop was off to the side and pulled him off and, and went, listen, and when I went by them, my real temptation was to roll down the window and, and make an obscene gesture. Now, I didn't do that because, well, I'm ordained, okay, <laughs> but I did smile at him. Then, <laughs> yeah, cool, you say, Steve, I don't believe you're saved. Yes, I am. You know, the feeling I felt was a God feeling. We cry out for justice, too. And I used a minor, silly illustration to talk about something that's bigger. Are you angry at ISIS? I am. And it's a God thing. As in Revelation, I hear the blood of the martyrs crying out for justice. And I say, God kill the That's a God thing. It's the heart of a God who who is a just God. And someday, somewhere, sometime. And then there's one other thing, and i got to share it with you. As Nahum talks about justice, he he not only uh, talks about how it's a manifestation of the law of God, and how it's the flip side of the love of God. He also says that the love of God, his grace and his mercy for his own is manifested in his justice. Nahum 1.12. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break the yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. It's a promise. Look at Nahum 115. Behold upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news and publishes peace. And you'll find those little diamonds in Nahum as you read through it, as he looks at the Assyrians, but glances at us and says, don't forget, you're his. Don't forget. The Cove, I was at the Cove last week, the Graham Training Center. Zach, where'd you, Zach, over here? You were there just before I was. That's a cool. You were there. Did it snow when you were there? That's a cool place to be, and I've been going since they started it. Every year, sometimes two or three times a year, I had a professor doing a seminar with me one time, and they used to put us in the Grove Park Inn. And the professor who will go unnamed said, Steve, I'd give anything for a beer. (laughs) I told him this at the Cove. And he said, but I can't put a beer on Billy Graham's tab. And we were sitting at dinner, and I said, put it on mine. He thinks (laughs) I drink. And I don't. I'm a teetotaler. So my professor friend got a beer, put it on my tab, and the grand people passed it just like that. They figured I'm a lot worse than I really am about alcoholic beverages. But at any anyway, rate, the cove was uh, was really a good. They asked me one time if I would teach the Book of Esther at the cove, and I remember whoever called me, I said, "No, you don't want me teaching the Book of Esther. Oh yeah, she's the queen." She's the hero of the faith, and I said, well, she liked to screw around, too, and I'm going to say that, and and you won't like it. And all those people are going to be mad at me. Let me tell you about Esther. It's a wonderful book. The name of God is never mentioned in the book of Esther, not once. You know how she got to be the queen? The king tried out a number of different women, and she was more sexy than the other. This is true. I didn't make this up. God said this. And so he made her the queen. And then she was, as Mordecai said, born for such a time. And you remember they were going to kill off. Haman was going to kill off all the Jews. And she intervened with the king and Haman got his in the end. Now, let me tell you something that you maybe don't know unless you're Jewish are really into Jewish things. There's a festival that is celebrated by Jews and it's called Purim. What's that? It's the time when they reenact Esther. And when the bad guys get theirs, they jump up and dance and sing and laugh. And the place it is celebrated more than any other is in the place of persecution of the Jews. During the pogroms, during the Third Reich, throughout history, when they lived in ghettos, and we've done some bad things, folks, that we need to repent of. But the Jews would close the doors, put a guard on the outside so they wouldn't, and they would celebrate Purim, laughing and dancing as God's justice was manifested. Hey, that was a gift that God gave his ancient people. And as Nahum talks about justice, not yet, not tomorrow. And by the way, Assyria got theirs. Babylonia wiped them out. Now, Babylonia turned out not to be that great themselves. But some good things were happening as God was working his way throughout history. And he was moving in a direction when the Messiah would come. And we would really understand justice. When the British Empire was at its zenith, uh, Queen Victoria celebrated her diamond jubilee, and they looked all over England for a poet who could write a poem on her diamond jubilee, and they got Kipling. And Kipling didn't wanna do it, but he said he would, and he struggled with it for weeks. He just couldn't get the words. And when he finally wrote the poem, and he gave it at the celebration, all of the nation, they were angry at him. Let me read a verse from that, that poem. I didn't memorize it, so I got it. This is it. Lo, all our pomp, of yesterday is one with Nineveh and Tyre. Judge of the nations, spare us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. Do you know the name Eric Hoffer? He was the longshoreman philosopher, profound guy, uh, lived in the northwest said a lot of memorable things. But during a political upheaval, he said something on a television show that I saw. This has been a number of years ago, and I've never forgotten it. He said, the people who have won should not be so joyous. And the interviewer said, and why is that, Mr. Hoffer? And he said, because those who crucify get crucified. Last. Now you know why. You think about that. I'm in. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this sermon, be sure to check out Steve's books, plus some exclusive and limited time offers at keylife.org slash store.